Uh, Lord God, this uh, letter says of your word that it is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray that in the hearing of your word, uh, written and preached this evening, you would, by your word, penetrate deep inside us, uh, revive us where hope is flagging, correct us where we may be going astray, and inspire us once again with the knowledge of all that Jesus Christ has done. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, despite the week of weather that we have had, we now know, don't we, that the sun comes out every day in England. Last Sunday's newspaper, The Sun, carried a long series of articles uh, about Patrice Mwamba, the footballer whose heart failed during uh, a match on St. Patrick's Day. For 78 minutes, his heart did not beat on its own. He's making a full recovery. Uh, There was much prayer for him. There was much prayer, not least because, according to Sky News, he is, quote, deeply religious, unquote. Well, his isn't quite the pattern of life that I would want uh, a member of Holy Trinity to be following, if they were deeply religious. He has a three-year-old son, but hasn't quite got around to marrying his son's mother, although he is now engaged. There is something not quite Christianly obedient about this picture, although the son was never going to be the paper that would make that point. I waded through all the column inches in the sun, and there were a lot of them online. And what was really fascinating was the theology of the piece. There was no Jesus. The theology, which comes, of course, from the Son, not from Mwamba himself, worked like this. Prayer offered to God brings about a miracle here on earth. There was no through Jesus about it. It was just, there's God, there's you, you pray, it works. The theology worked with... uh, God is up there, we're down here, provided we can get enough leverage on on him, God will help us and do what we want. And in our reading this evening, our writer wants to set out for us the full glory of what it is that God has done for us in Jesus. So, do please, uh, as I say, uh, get back to that reading. If you've closed your Bibles, page 1202. And the first thing I want to recognize from verses 5 to 9 is this, that Jesus is like us to deliver our destiny. The psalmist in Psalm 8 is simply gobsmacked at the scale of what God has done. Man, humans, we seem so puny. Verse 6, that what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, we are cared for. We are made lower than the angels, from Psalm 8. And remember from Mark's sermon last week, 
that angels were a really big deal in Jewish approaches to life. They were the mighty beings through whom God did all sorts of things. We are made so much lower than the angels, and yet, verse 7, you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And the hymn there, you may get distracted if you see the word son of man, uh, just before verse 7, that's just the standard word for humankind in Hebrew. It's not, it's not kind of capital S, capital M at this point. It just means humans. It doesn't mean Jesus. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. What, what a destiny that is. That we, even us, poor, flabby, feeble creatures, could look forward to glory and rule and authority. This authority wasn't promised to angels, according to verse 1. It was promised to humankind. And verse 8 says, everything is put in subjection under his feet, under human, humanity's feet. The only problem is that it doesn't look like that. And so verse 8 at its end says, we don't see everything subject to him. Psalm 8 promises that everything's subject to humankind, but we don't see it. On the contrary, of course, we are acutely aware of what seems to us the exact opposite. Life seems on top of us. Maybe it doesn't for you as you come in tonight, but you know that we are all sitting down in the company of some of those for whom it's true. We're the playthings of forces so much bigger than we can influence. It happens to uh, us a lot in pastoral work, but it happens to most of us just listening to our friends and the lives of those we work for. In moments, lives can be overturned. And if this were all, Psalm 8, if that were all that was said... God could only be described as a cruel joker. Because not only would he be leaving us feeble, but he'd be trying to persuade us that we were really fabulous. We don't see it. But we do see Jesus. Verse 9. We don't see everything subject to man, as Psalm 8 seems to say. But we do see Jesus. He was made, yes, for... A time a little lower than the angels. He was born into the world as a human being. But he is now crowned with glory and honor. He is where man was always supposed to be. He it is who has become one of us and has actually become the man who fulfilled all that Psalm 8 was promising. And how can that be? Well, through this letter, there are various ways of answering how it happened. But here, our writer is talking about suffering and death. And the language here, though, the, the, the word obedience isn't here, but the language depends on it. When it says in um, verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, we, think, we, see, we see that word suffering, and we think it means the physical pain of death. And sometimes it does. But the ancient languages put emphasis on the other aspect uh, as, at least as much. In a passive sentence, 
The emphasis is not on what I do, but on what is done to me. I comb, my hair is about me. My hair is combed is about what's done to my hair. That's a passive sentence. And the passion of Christ is not only his physical suffering, but what he, but the fact that he, the Lord of Lords, had things done to him. That's what it means, therefore, in verse 9. Because he suffered death. Death is what happened to him. He was done to. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the obedience which kept him going. The obedience in which he allowed things to be done to him, even the death itself of the cross. It's exactly the same as uh, St. Paul's point in Philippians 2, that Jesus was obedient even unto death. He could have declined obedience. He could have walked away from death at any moment. But that he kept on the road towards death and allowed things to be done to him is a sign of his obedience. And therefore, because of his obedience, when he alone of all humankind did not need to suffer for sins, because of that obedience, he alone, his obedience alone, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the, the name above every name, given him glory and honor in terms of our text. That way, his death becomes a tasting of death. Verse 9, different from anyone else's. My death is my death. Your death is your death. But his death is tasting death for me and for you, so that death is robbed of all the meaning it used to have. It's an entering into the experience of death that must change my experience of death. Jesus is made like us to deliver the destiny that Psalm 8 was always on about. So then let's go forward to verses 10 through to 16. Jesus is like us in order to defeat death. There are at least, I could think of, two kinds of perfection. Do you remember the, the vases that were broken at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge in 2006? They were on a, a window ledge, a bit like one of our window ledges, uh, and a guy halfway up the stairs um, stooped down to tie his shoelaces. As he got up, he trod on his shoelaces and tripped first into the one vase, then in the effort to avoid, um, uh, uh, avoid it, uh, managed to bring the others crashing down. There were thousands of pieces. Uh, a woman called Penny Bendel restored them in only uh, seven months. I mean, thousands and thousands of pieces. Those vases were perfect to start with. But she conducted a restoration so amazing that it is its own kind of perfection. There is a kind of perfection that belongs to God the Son, eternally rejoicing to serve his Father's will. But there's a different kind of perfection that belongs to Jesus the Messiah on earth, each moment deciding to obey his Father's will, when under the conditions of his humanity, that produces suffering and grief. And so, verse 
at 10, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. One kind of perfection to start with, another kind of perfection when he's lived lived through that perfection as a human being. And if the task from verse 10 was to bring many sons to glory, then it's entirely fitting for what he is about, that God should lead our Savior along the paths that we ourselves know, the suffering of a life that's anything but glory and honor. So he was made like us, of one family, as in verse 11, calling us brothers, in order to be the only one who's suffering, not like yours and mine, who's suffering, whose obedience to the conditions of life and death could deliver us from the consequences of our disobedience. Well, then follows one of the most breathtaking quotations in the whole of the New Testament. It's set out in verse 12, and we've said it together when we said Psalm 22. It's an astonishing psalm that we read earlier. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you probably know those words. They're the ones that Jesus cries out on the cross. The psalmist is in the deepest pit of suffering, knowing only complete abandonment from God. And yet even there, he calls to my God and says, deliver me. And then as the psalm proceeds, the perspective changes. The speaker it's, it's, it's rather odd. The speaker looks forward to the point from which he will be able to look back from the position of having been delivered and will be able to say once again, God has not despised my suffering, and so I will declare your name to my brothers. The words that Jesus cries aloud from the cross move. The, the, that's one moment, but the psalm moves so that the hopeful end of the psalm is in view. It is an astonishing thing that anyone wrote down Psalm 22. It has this huge nerve about it to go from, I am completely abandoned, to, you have nonetheless delivered me. In his suffering, in his death, and then in his redemption and rescue, Jesus is in complete solidarity with us. The quote in verse 12 makes us his brothers and sisters. They always uh, used the male, uh, not because they thought men were better, but because only men could inherit. So it's always about inheritance when you read brothers or men uh, instead of women and sisters. But that's no longer a case, so we can add sisters. The quote at the start of verse 13, I'll put my trust in him. Has Jesus fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah that he will trust even when nothing seems to go right. That's what was going on for Isaiah. And then again from Isaiah, still in verse 13, Jesus is fulfilling another prophecy. When everything seems against him, Jesus will respond to the call of God, here am I. And he will respond with his family in mind and the children God has given me. That's what God gave us words to uh, Isaiah. Uh, All the way down history, God has looked for people who will say, here am I. He wandered the garden saying, Adam, where are you? And throughout the Bible, there are these moments where someone finally gets it and puts out their hand and says, here am I. 
Isaiah was one. Jesus takes over that phrase. Finally, here is the one who does not run away when God calls. Here is the one who says, here am I. I am actually here now. I, humankind, have turned up and the children God has given me. And the point is made again through in verses 14 and 15. Those flesh and blood children suffer the fear of death. But he took on their humanity, shared in their path to death, so that by his obedience in suffering death, he might defeat the one who holds, destroy the one who holds the power of death. Because he suffered a death that he did not have to die, Jesus has conquered, defeated death, for us. Jesus is like us to deliver our destiny. Jesus is like us to defeat death. And thirdly, fewer D's, Jesus is like us to resist temptation. Thirdly, from verse 16 onwards, our author uh, looks at what belongs to Abraham's descendants, the people who are formed by promise and law. Not just the obedient son now, but the faithful high priest. It was the high priest's job once a year to go into the Holy of Holies and to make atonement for his own sins and for those of the people. There's going to be lots more to say about that in later chapters as we go through. But for now, our writer just touches on it. The priest has made atonement for our sins. We've not made atonement. He has. He's done so on our behalf. He's done what we could not do, because only the high priest is the high priest and can do it. So for the moment, that's all I'm going to say about that aspect, because there's so much more to come. But I do want you to look at the last verse. It's easy to read it. It's easy to read over it and to think, oh, it's good stuff. But why start talking about suffering uh, again? when suffering was really back in the earlier part of the chapter. Why start talking about temptation when temptation hasn't been mentioned at all? It's not particularly a theme of the priesthood. Still, at least we can be glad that there's someone to help us when we're tempted to do something we shouldn't. And that, I suspect, is what we would walk away with. Unless we paid more careful attention and said, no, that's probably wrong. When something appears out of sequence, it's because we haven't understood the sequence. It hasn't seemed to matter in anything I've said up to now, tonight, what the situation was in which the readers found themselves. But here it matters very much indeed. The Jews had a great religion. Greatest of all time, because God revealed it. They were dealing with the one true God. They were serving his revealed will. But now, in these days, the early church is preaching Jesus. And the, the the, the Christians with a Jewish background were looking back. Oh, remember the law? Remember the angels? And they were saying that a God who becomes human doesn't sound that special, really. It's nice to know that after suffering and death, Jesus got to go back to glory, but, but what about us? These people, therefore, they are not suffering the temptation to eat sweets when they should be eating their veggies. They are not suffering the temptation to go all the way when God really means don't go beyond first base. 
What's being described in verse 18 is very specific. It is the temptation to deny the faith that they've come into. And we know that from what is said later on. And we know what Jesus faced, first in the desert, but we imagine at every point, the temptation to claim his glory and honor, but to avoid suffering in the process. That would be great for him. Yes, he'd be back in glory. But it would be without us. Jesus was put to death because he resisted the temptation to deny his relationship with God. And he had every temptation to do just that. That's why he suffered. He suffered in order to to walk back to where we are in our temptations and then to take us with him through the cross, through the tasting of death, to glory beyond, so that that is now where we belong. When he was tempted, he stayed on the course of obedience, despite the suffering that it brought. Far worse than any suffering than you and I can ever know. And I don't just mean physical, because he could have jumped ship at any moment. He could have played the Son of God card, as you and I cannot. The get-out-of-jail-free card. Get-out-of-humanity-spring-back-to-heaven card. He could have played that card at any moment, and legions of angels would come to his rescue, but he did not. The temptation for him ran deeper, and the suffering was therefore fiercer than anything that can come our way. All in order to help those who are being tempted to deny, not any temptation, but God's saving grace. That's the temptation. So how, according to verse 18, does he help them? By dealing with sin and death, to take us, his family, to the glory that is our destiny, so that we too are crowned with glory and honor. Verse 18 is very specific. They had a particular temptation to deny what God was up to. By being who he is, by being what he does, by doing what he does, Jesus suffers that temptation to deny, but is obedient through it and beyond it so we can be strengthened. I wonder if we could, um, if if we had a screen big enough and we put up on it every fear that you came in with and I came in with this evening. Every anxiety. Truth is, if you listen to Scripture, every fear boils down to the one that's in verse 15. It's a fear of death. The fear of everything ending. The fear of everything being taken away. Scripturally, we'd have to guarantee that there's no fear we face that doesn't come ultimately from that sense that life is only heading one way, that you can never go back that there's no healing for the past or hope for the future. It's the fear of death. The fear that death ends everything. And even if you are younger, and you may not fear death itself, you fear the passing of the years when three years from now you will not have as many choices as you seem to have now. That's the fear, but Jesus has restored the hope of verse 8. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor so that we enter into that glory and honor and crowning for ourselves, which was our destiny. 
there's a photo on the web. Um, I saw it uh, when I was uh, investigating with my deep researches into the Sun newspaper last Sunday. It's a whole stand of people in the stadium at Bolton Wanderers, each holding up a sheet, thousands of them. And uh, they spell in great big letters as these sheets are held up the word Mwamba. I wonder what it would be like if just those few thousand people were delivered from feeble hope, that with enough hope, enough prayer, and enough leverage, and enough support from the sun, they could deliver a miracle. What if those thousands of people woke up tomorrow just knowing in their heart of hearts what God had been up to, has been up to in Jesus Christ. They'd be delivered from the fear of death. They'd know the conviction of glory. What if they read Hebrews and were so convinced of what Jesus has done for us in delivering our destiny that instead of holding up the word Muamba, they held up the word Jesus? And what if those thousands went back into work at the end of the weekend bearing witness for the truth of Jesus? It is so sad when we settle for so little. When we forget that Psalm 8 is what we were destined for. The readers of Hebrews were tempted to fall back into what's feeble, into what's sad, to fall away from what God had done. And I guess some of us may be. Let's not settle for less. Yes, this man was humiliated. Yes, this man suffered death. But why? Because your life and mine are a story of humiliation and death. And if he shared our humiliation and death, then we will share his life and glory and honour. And nothing can take that from us. Let's pray. Lord, we too go into a world uh, tomorrow, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps the rest of tonight, in which there is not that hope, in which the fear of death rules. And every now and then, for some, there is this little moment uh, where something seems to shine from far off, something around prayer perhaps, something about miracle, but it's still all very cloudy, still uncertain, still uh, mediated through the media. Lord, how we cry out to you for ourselves to take from us the fear of death, for ourselves to have renewed confidence in what Jesus has done, the height of to which he's taken us who have taken ourselves to the very depths. And if we long for it for ourselves, how much we long for those in our families, those who are our friends, those who are far away and haven't a clue 
Lord, your word is living and active. Take it into our hearts. And may we so burn that we will long to see it taken into the hearts of others. Amen.